Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Verdoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we talk about the things that affect our practices, the ways that we go about our business, and how we can be better as professionals. And this is another one of our continuing education eligible episodes. So follow the directions in the intro and outro on how to do that. And this is an episode that we have covered some of these topics before across a multitude of episodes. We'll link to those in our show notes. You can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. But in our exploration of ethics, we are circling back to the question of discrimination and particularly discrimination when it comes from therapists. And one of the wonderful things of having a podcast for several years now is that we have asked some of these questions before. We've come to some (laughs) conclusions before. And before we dive into framing the problem and how it fits and how our opinions have either changed or gotten more into depth of what we've done before, Katie, how have you looked at this differently over the last couple of years? Well, I think for me, the complexity of the problem becomes clearer and clearer because I think there's there's some blanket statements we can make. Don't discriminate and or be a whole person therapist and share your personal values and make it clear what you believe because there are some clients who need to know what your beliefs are because they may not work with you if they know. I think the 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 pieces that I think have been hard to sort out, and I'm hoping that we can get to some real practical guidance today. There's our personal values, being authentic, being a whole person therapist, showing up as ourselves in therapy. There's access and taking clients who we can serve best, but also not discriminating against folks based on gender or, or a multitude of other protected classes. And then there's also 
niche and and competence and all of those things. And so I think there's there's so much that goes into how do we decide if we work with a client, how we work with them, and when we refer out. And discrimination is just one piece of it. And so for me, I feel like really getting into the ethics and even some of the ethics that maybe if they're not conflicting, they're still a little bit at odds with each other and require some some real thought. And so for me, it's just, it's it's a nuanced question. And I think oftentimes we just yell, that's unethical, or, you know, I, I'm not going to work with those people. I don't agree with them, or I think they're awful, or whatever, or I don't think I could be competent with them because I just whatever, right? Right. And so I think I think we get into simple overarching statements, and I don't think that that's actually what what we're what we're looking at as therapists. I don't think it takes everything into account. Well, and I think you know our discussions and leading up to this episode, part of you know the really wonderful preparation that we do and the arguments that we get into before coming up with some kind of a coherent story. If you want to see some of that stuff, become a Patreon member and we'll share some of those things with with our patrons. But part of what really came up in a lot of that discussion, and you're bringing it up here again, is the ethics codes while we have singular pieces of them that apply in certain situations, it's looking at the code as a whole that ends up leading us to being able to make good ethical decisions in this stuff. And part of where this didn't necessarily happen is probably with the most infamous case of personal values versus ethics, which is Julia Ward versus Eastern Michigan University. Lay it on me. What is that one? So Eastern Michigan University is a public institution, and Julia Ward was a Christian student in its master's degree program in school counseling. This would have been around the year 2010. And the school in their practicum, amongst other things, binds their students to uh, respecting the diversity of clients and amongst things like the ACA Code of Ethics and Standards of Practice. Now, this student, identifying as a devoted Christian student, was assigned a client who identified as homosexual, and the student made known to the university, assuming supervisors, practicum instructors, and stuff, that her beliefs held that homosexuality is morally wrong and that it conflicts with her orthodox Christian beliefs, and that she would not engage in a gay-affirming counseling and requested that this client be referred to somebody else. The university's policies said, that's not how we do things here. This is a client who's assigned to you. We don't refer out. And amongst a a number of back and forth, ultimately, Julia Ward was dismissed from the university. Story doesn't end there because Julia ended up suing the university for a wrongful dismissal, uh, including that this was against her free speech, that she had civil rights and a free exercise of religion as evidenced by the First Amendment, and that these were violated by her dismissal from the school. And if you are looking for the legal case, this is Ward versus Wilbanks et al. And pits religious freedom principles against the rights of public universities to run their institutions as they deem appropriate. 
especially in the education of professionals and ultimately professionals that serve the public. Both the graduate students, Julia Ward and Eastern Michigan University moved for summary judgment. So this is where the initial court just kind of looks at the case on its merits and issues a judgment rather than going through a trial. And the court granted summary judgment in favor of the university and ruled against the student. And this was largely due to being tied to a professional code of ethics, namely the American Counseling Association. Julia eventually ended up appealing this decision and this went to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, which issued its decision on January of 2012, which reversed the trial court's grant of summary judgment in favor of the university. And what this did is sent the court or sent the case back to the U.S. District Court for further proceedings. And ultimately, the case ended up being settled out of court, where neither the university nor Julia ended up you know, really pushing for this to go to trial. The university- why, why was why was the appeal allowed? Like, why did the appeal overturn the original? What was, what was the argument there? The appellate court decision said that the ACA Code of Ethics does not prohibit values-based referrals like the one requested by Ward. Um, the decision explains that the point of the referral request by Ward was to avoid imposing her values on gay and lesbian clients. The court, the appellate court, pointed out that another section of the Code of Ethics expressly permits values-based referrals. The provision referred to by the court, uh, which is Section A11B, inability to assist clients, states that if counselors determine an inability to be of professional assistance to clients, they avoid entering or continuing counseling relationships. The section also says that counselors are knowledgeable about culturally and clinically appropriate referral sources and suggest these alternatives. And the court went on to cite other examples supporting that its assertion that value-based referrals are not prohibited in the counseling profession. So what this ended up with is, even though the appellate court turned it back to the trial court, and since it never actually went back through the trial court for an ultimate decision, nobody ended up with any sort of legal final definition on yeah. what the law says. So the decisions kind of ended up to where everybody feels like they could win in this. <laughs> well, and I think it it shows the the challenge because there are these different parts of the ACA code of ethics that speak to this very issue and provide different suggestions. Right. Now, amongst the discussions that we've heard of things over the years, when it comes to values-based referrals, discrimination, that kind of stuff, is things like, well, clients who would be you know, going to somebody with strongly held Christian beliefs like this who identify as LGBTQ plus wouldn't want or benefit from those therapists in the first place. Sure. And while there is potentially some clinical truth to that, it does speak to the very core of our profession of why we have things like ethics codes in the first place versus waiting for, you know, people to get upset enough to actually go to trial and not just have yeah. summary judgments overturned and that kind of stuff. And instead, what you get is riveting podcasts about law and <laughs> ethics 
that help dive deeper into why we do the things that we do, how we're taught to think ethically, and not just pick and choose which parts of the ethics codes that we want to apply to a certain situation. But as Julia pointed out, as the university pointed out, as the appellate court pointed out, we kind of, if we only look at one aspect of things, we can do all sorts of mental gymnastics to get to how we're justified in the actions that we do. And that's not necessarily why we have ethics codes in the first place, is to just kind of have some sort of pick and choose which way <laughs> to be able to behave. Yeah, choose your own adventure of ethics, uh, ethical behavior. <laughs> so so before we, we move forward a little bit, I, I just want to comment on we still haven't really got an answer. Like there's there's not a specific here of is it discrimination? Is it a values-based referral? Is it competence? Is it whatever? Like, like legal minds have have come to, to this task and said, oh, we could go either way. <laughs> right. And that's where, again, this is maybe a little bit more of an ethics discussion rather than a legal discussion. Fair. Fair enough. And, you know, to really point this out and you know our our founding principle book that we always refer to saving psychotherapy by ben caldwell <laughs> points out that the reason that we have things like ethics codes is who better knows how our profession should operate than those professionals who actively work in it that if we wait for lawyers and judges and politicians to set rules for us. I mean, how many of the things do we tell even each other of like, all right, you don't understand something about working with this particular population, let alone some, you know, restaurant owner from the middle of nowhere who ends up in Congress and, you know, sure. makes funny tweets. You don't <laughs> want people like that running to telling us how to run our profession. So instead, what we have is our ethics code. So the people who know what we do. And ultimately, these are the people who say, these are the aspirations that we look out for as holding up our entire profession to continue to have trust in us and the people who do our services. So I like the word aspiration. I want to hang on to that for later. But when we were talking about this, there's also in kind of framing what we're talking about, the state of Tennessee. And so maybe you can tell that story. So in 2016, the state of Tennessee, and I'm pulling from an article by Grzanska, Spangler, Miles Frantel, and DeVore. Grzanska uh, has written a lot about discrimination and ethics and is We'll we'll throw a few articles by him in here, but uh, especially around this Tennessee law. So in, in 2016, Tennessee became the first state to allow counselors and therapists in private practice to deny services to any client based on the therapist's sincerely held principles. That is quoted, sincerely held principles. The law's proponents framed mental health care ethics as infringing on counselors' religious liberties but its critics denounced the bill because it apparently targeted LGBT plus individuals. Mm. So this law is still on the books. But at the time, um, the 
annual ACA convention was scheduled in Tennessee. And when this law came into effect, the American Counseling Association had such a reaction to this that they ended up uprooting the entire uh, convention and moving it out of the state of Tennessee. (laughs) Uh, It moved it to California with like two months notice. And Katie and I have run conferences before. That is no easy or cheap process. but that That is an investment in a protest. But this was really looked at as uh, kind of opening up the, you know, legal restrictions that therapists would be facing when it came to discriminating against their, quote, sincerely held beliefs. You know, I don't want to get into tit for tat, you know, sorts of things or, or straw man equivalents throughout here, but I am going to use as an example throughout this episode of potential clients that, uh, you know, with sincerely held beliefs, conflicts by therapists. And so we're going to go back to my favorite example in all of this. And we will just use therapists who discriminate against clients who like seeded grapes. And (laughs) this will be our, our stand in because I think discrimination can take a lot of forms in a lot of different ways in the in the discourse of how we talk about things and just to keep this from being targeted against any one particular one um we will just use people who like seeded grapes as the fill in <laughs> and if you're wondering why seeded grapes is here we'll put the <laughs> the episode <laughs> That it's in in the show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. Was it was on uh it was on conspiracy oh, theories. Oh conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories. So uh so framing the problem now, we've got at least one state that says you can discriminate. Oh, there's been several more since religious then. beliefs. Okay, so so there's laws that, that are there, but then if I'm remembering correctly, ACA came back and said and you still have to follow our follow the ethics code. That's right. This is still an ethics episode. Yes. Yeah. So this isn't a legal episode. <laughs> this is an ethical episode. But I think we're we've got folks at different levels in different places saying, you have religious freedom. You don't have to work with people you don't want to. And even laws and Supreme Courts and different things grapple with this this nuance or not even nuance this decision over and over again around either around whether that law is actually legal (laughs) can you can you actually discriminate based on religious beliefs we're not going to we're not going to stay there because the ethics says you cannot discriminate but the ethical codes actually have a lot of different things and i actually found some so i'm gonna i'm gonna mention some right here go on i yes thank you there's no malfeasance which is don't do harm and potentially, if you have a, a, a sincerely held belief, you may do harm, either intentionally or unintentionally. I think if it's intentional, then you've discriminated and you're a bad people, bad person, but like, or bad therapist, I guess is more accurate. Um, but we're human. There's also veracity. This, and this is in the ACA preamble. I actually wrote things down because I was like, Kurt will want, me to, will want me to cite where I found this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you have to be truthful. And so if you are a therapist that believes being queer is bad and wrong do you have to be truthful about that and that would potentially then go back to causing harm um a4a is also saying avoid harm uh in a non oh and in that you can practice you have to practice in a non-discriminatory manner 
in the, within the boundaries of professional and personal competence. And so then it speaks to competence. If you have no lived experience or if you, you've been raised to believe somebody's quote unquote lifestyle choices are wrong, you know, can you be personally and professionally competent with them? And does this give you kind of some, some room to refer out based on competence? C, C.2 A says, uh, oh yeah, I think it's A. The, there's boundaries of competence, but you have to, uh, it requires a multi multicultural counseling expertise. So you have to have competence multiculturally across everything. But if you have a, a limit of competence, then, then you can refer out. And so then it becomes what is culture? Is disability culture? Folks in the disability movement would say yes. <laughs> so so there's there's a lot of stuff there. And then there's also in new specialty areas, you can't practice until you're competent. And so having someone come in with a type of a, a type of seeded grape that they like that you know nothing about and you have no competence in, you theoretically can't work with them until you're competent. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had extra time this morning. And then there's also the C uh, point two point G, which is impairment. Don't practice when you're impaired and identify when you are impaired. And if you have a strongly held belief is if that there's, you don't have to stop practicing completely, but you may have to limit your practice if you're impaired. So to me, <laughs> when I look at all of this together and you've called it mental gymnastics, but when I look at all of it together, there are some real challenges here because we should not discriminate. And it's, I think it's, it's easy for a lot of us as therapists to say, okay, I, I'm not going to discriminate with, for, for protected classes, mm -hmm. but even protected classes say gender. They don't say gender identities that are typically marginalized. So we cannot discriminate, discriminate against men, for example. And we have whole episodes on this. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also, it seems obvious that we don't discriminate based on religion, but you know, we like our, our episode on uh, conspiracy theories, there's a lot of beliefs that we strongly disagree with. And if someone comes in believing in seeded grapes, for example, and we strongly disagree with them, do we have the competence to work with them? And so it, it gets into this, this nuance of what is discrimination? what is competence and what is culture because the ethics codes directly say you have to continue to train yourself on culture. But as we've done, you know, 300 episodes almost at this point, most of the time cultures and subcultures, the first, you know, the first question we ask is what do therapists get wrong? Therapists get a lot wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's a lot to do to stay aware and, depending on how we set up our practice or how much time we have, especially in, you know, public agencies where folks have gigantic caseloads or like you have a gigantic caseload, <laughs> like there's not time to train and learn about every single client for hours every week. And so it gets really, it gets really complex to me. So did we, did I frame it? Did I make it as confusing and, and complex as possible? Those are really Good points. Thank you. And and you're going to now refute them all. <laughs> I'm going to add to them because right. part of the 
I, I really do encourage you to become a patron, like just to see what we came up with out of this episode. And part of our discussion <laughs> off air and just previewing it is we talked about if we ever restart the Therapy Reimagined conference, we're going to have a workshop that is just Olympic training for therapist mental gymnastics. And rather than <laughs> CE certificates, we're going to give out medals. I'm actually really impressed that you went and you looked at things beyond just the numbered and lettered part of the ethics codes. Many people forget that there's a preamble. And even in some of the ethics committee discussions that I sit in sometimes, you know, I have to remind people of like, there, there's a preamble that says some other stuff about this too. Well, and I also grabbed the section intro from the avoiding harm one. Like I was all over that. I was like, Kurt <laughs> always looks at the preambles and the, the section heads. I'm, I'm going in. That's <laughs> where the good stuff is. Yes. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Conveniently, you have left out part of, you know, the five principles that really do set up an ethics code. You brought up non-maleficence. You got, got to a, a LaCroix of beneficence in there, of, you know, <laughs> well, a flavor I was, I was, of... I was of... picking out the ones that that supported the the opposite. I wasn't going to do all of the dis the discrimination ones. Sure. <laughs> Because you already had those. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to add in a little bit of discussion around justice okay. and fidelity, which sure. you did not speak to, which are part of these five principles here. Now, justice, as defined in that ACA code, is treating individuals equitably and fostering fairness and equality. Yes. So this means above all else, setting everything all else in order to act ethically, we have to put ourselves in a position to treat all, all clients equitably and fairly. Sure. And we're human. And if we can identify, I'm not going to be able to do this with this particular client. That's where we get, that's where we get into this, whether it's mental gymnastics or a more complex ethical decision-making process. I think, I think that's the juice. That's the, that's the juicy part. And fidelity is honoring commitments and keeping promises, including fulfilling one's responsibilities of trust in professional relationships. Yes. So what I'm assuming is underneath your argument here is what if a therapist can't? Yeah. 
And what I'm saying is that these ethical principles are not just aspirational, but these are the the base of what we do. We have to put ourselves into the position to be able to do these things. Sure. And yeah, so and when somebody every single client, when somebody cannot start to even begin approximating an idea of how can I potentially do this? They are failing the very basics of our ethics codes. Okay. And if they cannot do that, that is a just a lazy approach to upholding the standards of our profession. And I know that we're really, you know, trying to frame this as a ethics discussion here in this episode, but you know, this is where just by virtue of having a license and being trained to have a license for pre-licensees, having a license is a guarantee from the jurisdiction who issues the license that you at least know how to think about approaching new and novel situations. And so for somebody to come in and just be like, you know what, I refuse to see people who like seeded grapes because that just goes against my sincerely held personal beliefs. By virtue of having a license, you have been theoretically taught in your graduate program, in your supervision, in your law and ethics classes, and all of the things that you would subject yourself to, like therapist podcasts on ethics, of... <laughs> Here's how I have to open up my mind to be able to approach a new and novel situation. And we we went into some of the the parts of this conversation in the, I think the three episodes we went, we talked about firing clients and and what what that looks like. But just to kind of sum up some of the concerns there, I can I can work as hard as I want on all of these, you know, the the main principles within the preamble, uh, you know, or whatever it is, you know, whether it's ACA ethics code, CAMP ethics code, AAMFT ethics, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. There, a lot of these things are very, very similar. And I think that as a human, I'm going to do everything I can to to be able to provide beneficence, you know, non malfeasance, you know, all of the things we just talked about. I'm going to do my best. Mm -hmm. And I am human and there are limitations. And there are also times when working with someone who is chauvinistic or uh, who has some sort of belief system or, or cultural orientation against me as a therapist, but want to work with me so they can mess with me. <laughs> You know, I think there's that that element or wants to work on it directly, but I don't have the bandwidth to do that work with them based on my own trauma history or whatever it is, right? Just whatever. That doesn't mean I can't practice as a therapist whole scale. It means that I can determine I am not the right therapist for this client. It just is, is it based on discrimination? This person has these characteristics and I don't work with those people. Is it an actual ethical decision-making process and saying, I am not competent to work with this person, but, but I think you get into a pretty black and white discussion around this where it's like, you either do this or you should not be a therapist. And I think, and, and I think you'd said that in one of the previous episodes and it's like, well, wait a second. There's, there's, there's a lot of gray area where therapists can do the best that they can, but potentially refer out 
in a way that without a, a really nice documented ethical decision-making process looks like discrimination. Yes. And it, and it may not be if they've actually documented a, 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 a whole process. Mm-hmm. We can't work with every single person. Like as hum- we, we will do the best that we can to work with every single person. But I think we need to honor that we can't become the perfect therapist or even potentially a competent therapist for every single client. I think the the discrimination and protected classes, I think, are are a little bit more obvious, and I think there's there's a more of a push from our profession to try to be able to do that. But there's also stuff like eating disorders or other things, which is I refer out at at this level, and and it's a competence issue. And I think when we try to sort some of those things out, eating disorders, you know, theoretically, are really just a competence area, but disability. If I don't, if I don't have lived experience and I have not been trained to work with folks with disabilities or disabled folks, I should probably refer out. And that is a protected class. No, I, I think what what you're describing here is years of experience and kind of an internalized ethics decision-making process that doesn't go through as formally as I would love everybody to, you know, kind of document things out and to be able to, <laughs> to point things out. But, and we, we go through the very long process in our, our episode on dual relationships. And we also have a alternate <laughs> ending where we go through it again uh, <laughs> over on Patreon. <laughs> but like camp ethics code 1.1 is therapists make reasonable accommodations for people with physical disabilities. Sure. Full, full stop. Like, this is not like. I'm I, not saying, do you have an elevator or not? I'm saying, do you understand if they're coming in and saying, I'm having trouble because I'm a disabled person and I and I don't know how to navigate the medical system and blah, 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 and it's all issues surrounding disability mm-hmm. and you have none of that competence. That, that That is a competence area, but still you're, you're potentially referring out a disabled person. Uh, you. As as a licensee, have the competence to be able to help people navigate systems. Okay. I, mean, I mean, that's I, I think what you're what you're doing, and this is where you know the proliferation of short form content about our profession. Things like TikTok is almost like this game of telephone that we played like as kids. Of like, we, we take these sound bites, and then somebody else takes a sound bite off of that and says. You know, hey, did you know this thing is this feature of this other thing? And then some layperson takes it and says, did you know that this is a diagnostic criteria for this thing? Like you're the reason that you get frustrated by the longer discussions into these kinds of things is it is a deeper, slower thinking process Sure. that there are aspects of what you're talking about is right in that. If there are certain client needs that require a higher level of specialty and skill, like you said, eating disorders at a certain level of thing, that is a client need. But up until that point, there is tons of common factors research in that level of training, level of knowledge of background skills, years of experience within uh, working within a population. Most therapists have the skills and the abilities to work with most clients pretty effectively. 
but and we, I think we, and I think that, that would, would disagree with that. And at the risk of telling those folks that they're wrong, those folks are wrong. <laughs> those folks are picking and choosing how they go about their work. And this is part of why over the years, we changed the question at the beginning of our guest episodes of what do therapists do wrong about this to what are some things that therapists can pick up on other people's mistakes so that way they're not making the same ones? It's guided towards learning and being able to do these skills better. You know, if you're sitting in your car, you only have like five minutes on your way to the office and you need to break our episodes up into like a week because, you know, <laughs> you're going back to and forth to your office every day. Just, you know, if you need to sit in the parking lot for an extra couple of minutes because you can't wait to hear what Katie and Kurt say next, like <laughs> then then use your seven minutes at a time. But I get this, that, I get but, this but this excuse I, I, of like this population makes me scared. I'm too busy. That reflects on all of us. Sure. And sure, there are times when it comes to capacity. I get, you know, phone calls of like, hey, do you have any openings? And I say, not really. You know, I, I have a capacity <laughs> limit. Yes. Um, And, you know, I, I know that you're trying to get to a point of like, when is it values-based versus when is it discriminatory versus when is it client need? So going back to an eating disorder thing is like, all right, if this is a, a client who's got some disordered eating and like, you know, sometimes they just really get triggered by seeded grapes. Most of us have that ability to work with clients on managing anxiety and reactions to environmental stressors. If that same client is somebody who only eats seeded grapes and is having really strong physical, you know, reactions and, and you know, deficits, those are things where that's a client need. But if it's like, hey, you know what? Just talking about seeded grapes triggers me as the therapist. I can't work with you at all. That's discrimination. Sure. And I, I, I feel like that's a simple answer. And there's there's more complexity when we have real people in the room. And I think that what I'd like to get to, not just like, hey, don't be lazy or don't, you know, don't discriminate. I want to actually get down to how do we determine what is what we should do when someone contacts us? They want to work with us in therapy and they like seeded grapes or they eat seeded grapes or or they don't eat seeded grapes. They bring seeded grapes into the therapy room. <laughs> And they spit them on the floor. No, I think it's it's something where they, they, they actually... crunch them in the background while you're talking. <laughs> I think the the thing that I'm trying to sort out is how do we make these decisions? Because there are times when we will do harm if we work with someone who is not within our area of specialty, not within our area of lived experience, not within our area of, of primary uh, understanding of our profession. And there are times when we need to suck it up and take a, take a training or consultation or those things. But, but we, I don't have unlimited time and unlimited resources to take 40-hour trainings for every client that decides they want to work with me. And mm -hmm. so I think it's it's this element of how do I make sure that I am working ethically, following all of the ethics codes, not just the non-discrimination one or not just the non-malfeasance or non, not just the competence one. It's that how do I take all of those things in an understanding way and not just because, hey, I don't really want to learn how to work with somebody, but 
I want to do a good job and I want to, I want to effectively use my time as a clinician to work with the folks I work with best. We've talked about niche and, and, and having folks self-select and we have a whole episode on brand called you and probably a bazillion other marketing mm -hmm. episodes from long ago. But when someone still comes through and they say, I want to work with you and you really don't feel like you can, can be the best therapist for them. I mean, some of it is, it comes down to, are there reasonable referrals? And I, I think we have episodes on refer out. So like, we've literally talked about this a lot, but there's, there's this, this X, this, this line to walk where it's not just like, Hey, I don't want to work with men. I hate men. Men are the bane of my existence. So I'm just going to refer all men out. It's, it's more this particular, whether it's characteristic or presenting problem or whatever it is, is something that I don't think I can do a good job at. And so I want to, if that's the presenting issue. And so I want to make sure that I'm doing a good job at connecting people to the correct person. And if it's not me, not taking that client. I think that part of how you hear me talk about this is we should take all clients and I'll be the first one to say, no, this isn't not a, a push for you to take all clients. Okay. But I, I think this is again, where the ethical discussion around this and pointing to 2012 article by David Kaplan, Ethical Implications of a Critical Legal Case for the Counseling Profession, Ward v. Wilbanks. And this was uh, in the Journal of Counseling and Development uh, in 2014. And what Kaplan goes into is the parts of the ACA Ethics Code A11, which is about values-based referrals, uh, termination and referral, and specifically getting into Julia Ward's focus on A11B, uh, values within termination and referral. And this is ultimately what the uh, appellate court ended up sending the case back to the district court on. But what Kaplan points out is that A12 is about abandonment and client neglect. So right in the same part of the ethics codes. So oftentimes ethics codes will be organized as far as these things are related or married together in some way. And what Kaplan goes on to talk about here is that when we just blanket refer out clients or we hide behind things like sincerely held beliefs, that we're at the risk of abandoning potential clients that even if we haven't seen them for a first session, if clients feel some sort of therapeutic relationship has been established, even in that referral process, and we tend to neglect them based on things like values and those held beliefs, we're at risk of terminating or we're at risk of abandoning them. And so this is where Kaplan doesn't go this strong, but this is wording that I would like to see in the ethics code. Um, spelled out. But what Kaplan does say is, we should look at referring out as the ethics of last resort. Okay. Explain that more. Because it can lead to perceived abandonment, counselors who drop clients whenever potential values-based conflicts arise 
violates this prohibition against abandonment. The code recognizes that a client might suffer harm if the counselor turns away at the very moment that the client's most sensitive issues arise. And because of this risk, termination and or referrals are matters of last resort to be handled on a case-by-case basis with the sensitivity to the facts specific to the client in question. So I like this as as a, a little bit more specific guidance. If I have someone come to me and we start talking on the phone and then we're talking about referrals and I think we have some episodes on referrals um, it's a, it's a little complex on when the the relationship, the therapeutic relationship starts. But this is saying if someone comes to you, start talking to them on the phone. You have a responsibility not to abandon them, and so this is potentially one of the reasons therapists don't answer their phone. But given that, there's this this element of if I can work with you, if if we've started to develop even a a minute rapport based on the beginnings of a conversation where I'm, I'm saying, Hey, I potentially can see you. I can, let's start this process. And then something comes up that that's like, Ooh, I have a strongly held belief. This may not work out. You don't immediately go to sorry because you believe in seeded grapes. I can't work with you because I don't believe in seeded grapes. And so I think this will be a conflict. At that moment, and, and I've done this actually with eating disorders, <laughs> so, so I'm going to suggest a solution here and see what you think. At that moment, they say, I, I strongly believe in seeded grapes. It's a, it's a core factor in my life. I might say, to, to do the, the veracity and the whole person therapist say, I'm seeing the, the presenting problems as X. There's also this other factor of seeded grapes. And I just want to let you know, as a therapist, I hold different beliefs about seeded grapes. Do you think that would get in the way of our being able to work on the problem, which is X? What do you think? You're like 70% of the way there. Okay. So what else do I need to have there? If making a mutual decision with the client is the client decides, hey, you know what? You're open and honest and you know, kind of holding the truthfulness about your experience and your ability to help me. You as the therapist are responsible for extending the action, which is let me help find some appropriate referrals. Well, I think, well, that was just the initial initial gambit, so to speak. If the sure. client says you've been honest and open and I don't think it'll be a problem, then mm-hmm. you take the client, Right. If the client's like, hey, I, I I get it. I have a really strong belief system around seeded grapes. I don't need to talk to you about it because it's not really that relevant to, to problem X that mm-hmm. I'm coming in for therapy about. I'd like to see you. The therapist then has to see the, the client, right? And if the client's like, oh, I really need somebody that's going to understand seeded grapes. It's my whole life. Well, and, then and it's the- going into let me find you a nice warm referral to someone who also holds similar beliefs around seeded grapes. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. 
you know, if this was all stuff that was able to come out in the intake phone call, the intake, you know, sort of first connection sort of thing, I think that those clients who are going to identify that and make that as a big issue, you know, follow the brand called you sorts of things. Like, yeah. you know, it's been a, a while since I've had couples, a while since couples oh. have been referred to me. You know why? It's because I don't actively advertise or make it known that like I'm better off working with a, a variety of other clients. My website doesn't really, you know, put that out there, those kinds of things. Sure. I still hold that that is ethical. Like, here's who I'm really good at working with. When couples call me, hey, here I'm I'm able to work with couples. There are plenty of other therapists who can probably help you a whole lot better than me for some reason. Are you sure that you want to work with me? <laughs> well, no, at this point, if go back to the decision making sure, yeah, episode, yeah. you are not taking clients. Well, but oftentimes when this stuff does come out is maybe not maybe not in the paperwork. It's later. And this is where yeah. that that relationship has already been established. And you know, as much time as we would love for people to be able to put into only getting their niche clients in private practice. This is also an episode for people in public agencies and in yeah, graduate and programs, and they, they don't get to choose. No. And this is where all of us are under the same professional umbrella. Yeah. And while it's a little bit, you know, easier to be able to brand a practice, you know, of your own versus when you work for somebody else, Going through some of this stuff is learning how to deal with things as they come up. And, you know, it's when those clients that, you know, you've worked with, you know, for several years before on something that is within your niche. And then they come back five years later and they're like, you know what? I used to identify as a seeded grape and now I'm identifying as a seedless grape. And I just <laughs> really trust in the relationship and the help that you provided me before. Sure. Those are the kinds of things where, yeah, you can still be open of here's competence. You can make the decisions with the client on what you can provide. And the expectation is, and, and the parts that Julia Wards and all of these court cases have not added in is all of the ethics codes of you then have an ethical responsibility to go and get better competency and get better consultations as part of this. And it is something that is potentially an investment. And, you know, you might want to be able to limit some of this stuff, but you do have an ethical obligation to go and learn more with emerging populations, whether and emerging parts of your practice, whether those are parts of your practice that you are fully moving into on your own, or if it's something that's thrust upon you by a client unexpectedly. I feel like what you're talking about has a lot of relevance to folks in private practice. To a certain extent, we can identify what clients we take and not take, mostly around kind of the funnel, so to speak, you know, networking with referral sources, telling them who we work best with, making sure that our website is very clear on who we work best with, and, and potentially trying to 
at the beginning of the process, have some of these open conversations and determine with the client, am I the best fit for you here? Like really digging into that and, and doing an assessment on fit from the very beginning and making sure that the client is taken care of in the best way possible. But for folks in, in public mental health or working in group practices or, or things where you do not choose your own clients, I think that this potentially is helpful because we're saying, figure out how to work with all the clients, but it's also potentially really frustrating because I, I look at especially poorly funded community centers that have, that are barely paying their clinicians, you know, hopefully they are paying them, but they're barely paying their new clinicians to do this work, they're oftentimes stacking the caseloads very big and not giving them any, you know, any agency on who they see, how they set up their schedule, all of those things. And this is adding an additional burden of, and I have to figure out how to work with these clients. And so I want to pop back into one of the things that you said before, which is the common factors element. And being able to show up as a therapist and a human and, and coming from a place of curiosity, even if you don't know about their particular brand of seeded grapes or seedless grapes, you can still be a human in a relationship. And I think that goes to if we dig deeply into the common factors and show up in that way, I think we can work with a lot of clients and not do harm and potentially do good. I think it's taking that extended level to get more training, to get more to consultation. Sometimes that's not available to folks in these really overworked, underfunded centers. And so is that sufficient? Really digging into the therapeutic relationship and showing up in the best way that you can and potentially doing some Google research or whatever you can do that, that gives you a little bit more context but to potentially working together with the client to be the best therapist for them, if that's what you've got. It costs nothing to sit in a room with a client and listen to them without rolling your eyes, yeah. without sighing at things that make <laughs> you uncomfortable, to be able to have a genuine, positive human relationship with somebody. Yeah. Well, I mean, it costs emotional and mental load, but I think those are the things that we're signing up for. And, yes. and hopefully we have some autonomy, which again, folks that are underworked or overworked and underpaid may not have all of that mental and emotional load that, that they need for gigantic caseloads. So I just want to acknowledge that this could be hard, but I think it is something where if we can learn that, if, and, and not even if, we need to learn that because that is what we're being tasked to do. I mean, that I could get my head around. I think it's that that element of you have to to have all of this competence and all of this extra training and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, but I can't do it all at once. Sure. And I'll totally normalize that as part of the learning process. But it's something where it's... An ethical responsibility. It's a practical responsibility. And I think that this is something that tends to contribute, especially for early career clinicians and students into some of that imposter syndrome thing is the risk of taking kind of this approach of 
you know, kind of what you're talking about. I'm only able to work with those things that I'm competent at. And unless I have all of these trainings and stuff, I'm not competent at things that leads to imposter syndrome or, you know, kind of this, I have to be perfect for everybody where there is that shade of gray that you're looking for, which is, all right, I'm going to show up perfectly imperfect. I'm going to be in the process with my clients. I'm going to be, as the ethics codes point out, truthful about where I'm at in my experience with these things. Because the opposite is also true. How many people do we see who go to every single training but have no practical experience of being able to apply things that are potentially just as ineffective, if not more? Yeah. And so there's there's a space within there which is being honest with clients of here is a now emerging part of my practice. Realistically, I I have the ability to, you know, look into this a little bit at a time and go on this journey along with you. I may not be 70 steps ahead of you like I am with other populations that I'm really comfortable with. But I think that here's a great social media question for us to put out this week, but it's <laughs> how many hours in a given week do you put towards learning about new things about clients that you work with or potentially work with? Because a couple of weeks ago, we just had, you know, Maureen Werbach on and we had a great social media response when, you know, we did the poll quote as far as like every business owner should put an hour a week just looking at the emergence of where their business is going. That's not part of our ethics code, but everybody, you know, yay, you know, let's do that. But is I I have a concern that once we get to a level of comfort, we stop actively going out and learning and being able to actively apply the things that we're learning with clients. I want to, I want to address that though, because I think that my perspective on it is not that people aren't learning. It's that they're learning more about the things they already know. And so they're, they are digging deeply into IFS, EMDR, you know, whatever it is, they're going deeply into either modalities or they're going deeply into their niche specialization. And I think some of that's good, but I think what you're really saying is, is that folks are not taking the time to research clients that are unfamiliar to them or, or new to them in some way. And so I, I think it's, it's something where being able to have that capacity to identify, this is an interesting new client that has an interesting new characteristic, a, a new take on seeded grapes. Mm-hmm. I think being able to say, hey, I'm going to do some research there. That's part of my responsibility is great. We will go to all of the episodes. I'll even just put the burnout episodes or whatever it is. <laughs> this requires you not to be burned out and it requires you to be doing your own work in some ways, whatever that looks like. Because I, in my head, the thing we, we've skated around and not really addressed directly are the folks who discriminate people who are privileged because of their own, you know, kind of marginalization by those, by that class of folks. And I think that there is legitimate harm that they are experiencing and have experienced in their lives. And they may be discriminating. You know, I think you, when we talked about it pre, it's like they may be punching up, so to speak, 
but there's still this need to be able to show up for the client that comes to your door or your phone call or your Zoom screen or whatever. And so I think it's that that element of we need to be able to manage our own responses and our own emotions. And I think that there is an, there is an, a space beyond which or a line a, a, a past where we can do that competently and we need to know what that is. And so I don't know if we want to take well, back into that part of the conversation, but I think the ethics codes are saying be emotionally capable of working with any person that comes to you. And I'm saying, I don't know that that's reasonable. And yet, whether it's an aspiration or a, a requirement that we, we get ourselves to that place, I think we need to, we need to be at least aware of where we sit, where we sit in the current moment. Well, I'm glad that you're pointing out this, you know, punching up sort of thing here, because, you know, in the camp's code of ethics, 1.1 is we don't discriminate based on all of these kinds of things. And that includes socioeconomic status. You know, so we have to see rich clients, guys. We can't we can't discriminate. <laughs> <laughs> One of the situations where you don't eat the rich. Uh, <laughs> But it separates out and it's a it's a separate it's one of those neighbor ethics codes where we also understand the historical prejudices against some of these populations. Again, nobody is saying, you know, white cishet men are going to, you know, have historical prejudices against them. That they don't they don't apply in one point two. Yeah, we can't discriminate against them based on one point one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's the extra care that we put in understanding those from traditionally marginalized protected groups, but that's still trumped by the one right before it, which is we still don't discriminate against anybody based on these characteristics. Yeah. And and just to clarify, because I realized we were almost talking in shorthand, we can't base we can't discriminate based on any gender any gender not just we can't discriminate against marginalized gender identities we Correct. can't yes. discriminate against any socioeconomic class not just we can't discriminate against folks who are poor mm -hmm. and so i think it's it's being able to say hey wait a second if i have these issues with cis het white billionaires if they come to my door, I still have to see them. <laughs> if the therapeutic relationship has the beginning of sprinklings of being established, <laughs> you need to go through a very resolute decision-making process. Because, again, all of this stuff comes from reducing your liability. Okay. You know, if... As an ethics committee, we are looking at something that smells like discrimination. It looks like discrimination. And there's a really thoughtful process that went into, you know what? I had 31 clients in my private practice. I couldn't fit in one more uh, client who needs three sessions a week because they you know, are presenting with really high-risk suicidal-type behavior. I made solid referrals. I introduced this client to other therapists and they were, you know, really focused on working with me because I'm awesome. Um, <laughs> Which is why I, I have 31 clients. Right. Um, that looks a little bit different rather than, 
you know, if a client is complaining and says, you know what, that therapist rejected me because I like seeded grapes. Mm-hmm. So this is where it seems laborious to really be able to go in and document all of this stuff, but having that protects you. And it's when you don't go through that good decision-making process and you don't document this kind of stuff, you're opening yourself up to liability. Sure. And, and another comment that, that I think is worth exploring a little bit, and I know that we're kind of at the end of our time here, but it is your decision-making process and or your decision-making process in, in collaboration with your client it's not going to a Facebook group and having people tell you, you have to refer out because you don't have lived experience or you have to refer out because you can't be an ethical provider for them or you have to refer out because you are of a different, you know, orientation to seeded grapes. Like I think you have to make that decision with your client. You, you have the full conversation or you have the full decision-making process, but it, it can't be unduly influenced by folks who don't have all of the facts, which you cannot get from a Facebook group. If you need guidance, seek consultation appropriately and, and potentially even document that consultation because I think it's so easy to say, well, you don't know that type of client. You are going to de facto harm them, refer out. Yes. And don't don't participate in therapist games of telephone. Yes. Well, and I want to I want to add a little bit to our summary here too because I think that there's there's a clarification that I think we got to that I want to just say more specifically. It is discrimination when you have no thought and you refer out based on a protected prejudice bias and, and some bias, sort of yeah. Yeah, some sort of bias or or related to a protected class that there's there's no thought to it. It can be discrimination when you don't go deep enough into that decision making and it's, well, I don't think I can help you, so I'm going to refer you out. Mm-hmm. There needs to be deeper thought. There needs to be an understanding of how do I make this decision. And again, I I, I was joking earlier, but we do have, I think, some pretty good episodes on on ethical decision making, um, or I guess an episode around uh, dual relationships that I think really shows the level of depth that can be very helpful, especially when you're in a place that you're not quite sure how to how to think it through deeply enough, and and you're concerned. Seek consultation, keep learning, and and show up as a therapist using you know kind of the common factors principles to be helpful at least to a certain extent. I think the way that we avoid having some of these decisions land in our lap is being very clear in all of our marketing materials and all of the things on who we serve best and folks will hopefully self-select out if our deeply held beliefs are misaligned with theirs. And so it speaks to, if you have deeply held beliefs that you think may be important for clients to know, put them on your website. (laughs) And and make sure they're aware of that. I think the, the other element is really do a good initial phone call and and not just talk about how you work, but get to know the person and the client a little bit so that you can understand is it 
Is it discrimination? I just, I didn't really want to work with a client like this. Is it competence? This, this person has a pretty specific need that I don't think I can fulfill without, you know, a, a year of training. And so we, you know, I can refer out and, and is it, a relationship that that is worth pursuing. I think if we can do some of that really good assessment up front, I think it helps us to be able to to not get into the situation where six months in, all of a sudden we find that we're in deep conflict with our client and not not able to work with them. And so I think it's it's something where there's there's still nuance, but understanding your competence includes working with a human being. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your specialty and, and expertise may be very, very focused. And so if that's the case, make it clear. And discrimination isn't, oh, I don't work with some people because they don't fall within my niche. It's I just don't work with these people and I don't have a thoughtful process behind how I choose who I serve and who I do not. And when you can't serve someone who's called you, you need to do really good referrals which I think we do have a full episode on that. So I'll put yes. that in the show notes. <laughs> you can find our references and show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com and make sure that you join our Facebook group where we don't play games of telephone there. Uh, it's the Modern Therapist Group. Follow us on our social media and consider becoming a patron for all of the wonderful background information that we put out. And, you know, we do cite our patrons every so often in our episodes and create little <laughs> carve outs for them. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest-rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 